section twenty two of neighbourhood a year's life in and about an english village by tickner edwards this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eleven november part two i went first of all a few strides out over the green and looked backward rightly to estimate if i could my own part in the little communal symphony the bluff bulk of the house with its coven roof and many gables stood dark against the greyer darkness of the hills and behind it rose sable elm plumes fast thinning under the recent autumn chills from its windows shone lights of varying significance there were my own red-shaded candles with a corner of a crammed bookcase dimly visible above them there were naked kitchen lights with ware of polished pewter and copper glinting behind and a pleasant clatter of crockery there was a window where the light burnt red and low and wavering as from a spent hearth and a quiet ripple of music from a piano keeping it congenial company there was the window high up in the great gable whose flickering light cast a bunch of head shadows on the ceiling suggestive of nursery bedtime and fairy tales round the fire it was all very reassuring and enheartening yes the old white house had its integral part to play in this good english game of neighbourhood and played it passing well round tom clemmer's forge a group of village lads was gathered all looking on at the work with an interest that amounted well nigh to fascination as i came up and stood unobserved in the shadow of the elder tree there was before me a picture in which two colours only were represented glowing crimson and deep velvety black young tom stood pincers in hand watching the iron in the fire behind him his apprentice laboured at the bellows with every wheezy puff the furnace roared out an imprecation and spat hot cinders upon the floor it was a large piece of metal that tom had in work something out of the ordinary run of his business it seemed and he turned it and shifted it with an anxious eye no one spoke a word for somehow we all knew that a crisis was coming and we were expected to hold our tongues until it was victoriously passed at length the moment came tom thrust the pincers into the blaze and drew the white-hot iron out upon the anvil immediately the apprentice left the bellows seized a great hammer and swinging it over his head began to let fall on the metal an unceasing rain of mighty blows as tom twisted and manoeuvred the glowing mass about with all the strength of his wiry arms it lengthened squared itself in the middle flattened out at each end 
bent into complicated curves then turned upon itself and was united miraculously head to tail still gripping the writhing thing with one hand tom took a punch in the other and pointed it to various parts of the work and wherever he pointed the hammer drove a bolt-hole clean and true through the rose-red iron finally tom lifted the finished piece above his head and came striding to the door with it the crowd of onlookers scattered right and left out into the darkness he plunged and straight to the pool by the roadside we saw the thing poised for a moment like a mammoth firefly over the water and then with a roar and an angry splutter it vanished into the pond it was scarcely six o'clock and already the night was pitch black with a creeping chilly air from the north it was not loitering weather people were moving briskly on their several ways cottage doors were shut and windows diamonded with moisture roving about with no settled purpose but to humour the neighbourly fancy and to identify myself with the evening life of the place i presently came full tilt at a corner upon farmer coles the very man said he barring the way jovially with his stout oak stick didn't ye promise me that when i killed that four-year-old weather ye'd come and take a bite along o us well tis a saddle to-night and i was on the road to fetch ye roundabout man and straight for the farm now when a south-down flockmaster whose pedigree sheep are famous throughout the county bids you to his table with the announcement that the principal dish is to be mutton there is only one thing to do that is if you are human and of sane mind i turned and went along with him without demur jane's sister and her man be with us said farmer coles as we left the village behind and mounted the steep lane that led to the farmhouse and weaverly'll be there and the gals be home so we won't lack for company i don't know as ye ever met jane's sister's man parrot by name no wonderful well-educated man though he be we found the reverend mr weaverly a shining gem of purest water set in the ring of hearty country faces that surrounded the drawing-room fire the broad-shouldered broad-faced man with a mat of sandy beard and a very bald head who occupied the great armchair in the corner i judged to be mr parrot mrs coles and her sister both comfortable of mien and rigidly ceremonious of visage sat side by side in flowing black silk gowns knitting as for a wager the younger members of the household who filled the interspaces of the circle fidgeted in a constraint of merry silence 
exchanging covert glances of boredom and all obviously pricking ears for the first sound of the dinner gong this clanged out behind us almost at the moment of our entry into the room providentially cutting short the first amenities of greeting and before my fingers had done aching from mr parrott's grip i found myself sitting at the loaded board with mrs parrott's voluminous drapery overflowing me on the one side and on the other her husband's great brown barricade of an elbow securely fencing me in mutton observed mr weaverley presently by way of filling up a pause in the conversation due to our all watching with secret anxiety farmer colza's attack on the joint mutton and on a monday you remember the little game of alliteration we played at the school treat mrs coles really we could make an admirable sequence here mutton and monday and miss matilda sitting by my side and and if it were only march instead of and we'll soon all be munching of it sir cried farmer coles <laughs> that's the best hammer all gravy george at the inclusion of her name in the sequence the eldest miss coles had blushed then let her glance demurely droop upon her chrysanthemum wreathed bosom it was a moment of exceeding pride and satisfaction to her for here was mr weaverley beside her an incontestable a beautiful fact while miss sweet for once was half a mile away now she looked up coyly i think she hesitated i could suggest a oh i know a lovely one mr weaverley laid down knife and fork to rub his hands delightedly do tell us he murmured i am positively longing to the eldest miss coles turned him glamorous eyes marmaduke she said and i think i was the only one present to realise the whole ingenuity of the manoeuvre for she had contrived here in the open family circle before a dozen people yet with entire meekness and propriety to address mr weaverley by his christian name as the meal progressed and tongues became generally loosened mr parrott whose silence except as regarded his hearty application to his food had so far remained unbroken now essayed to contribute his share of the talk his first effort was a startling one do, 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 he began smiling over his shoulder at me do, do you la, la, la. he stopped and gazed helplessly towards his wife like dear suggested mrs parrott softly N no i was a going to 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 ask ye if you la 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 lend then <laughs> emma i i don't want to b b borrow northern or the gentleman 
it was just to ask if he l lived there you are in w w what say jane tis apple pie george or maybe you'd sooner try the pie jane pie my d dear pie if you please mum and a double dose of the sh sh sugar they allus says don't they sir as if a man has a sweet t t t sweetheart dear oh ay laughed mr parrot suddenly inspired he looked across the table roguishly at mr weaverley and matilda and all glances followed his ah uh, well n n never mind we was all young once and mrs coles deftly drew the fire of attention away from the absorbed unconscious pair william dear emma has nothing in her glass and there you sit staring at the cheese as if as if it were only for show and as wooden as you are and do pray pass the old ale to mr oh deplorably deplorably so sighed mr weaverley to the rapt matilda over and over again i have remonstrated with her but all in vain i fear each time i have said mrs gates if you will feed little children on new hot bread and red herrings and only think of it beer you will find not only their physical but their moral nature entirely it is strange how in a room full of heterogeneous talk the attention of a quiet listener flits uncontrollably from one quarter to another much as i was interested in mrs gates's domestic policy i lost it here to find myself in the rickyard taking part against my will in some complicated sporting affray and there were three of them father in the trough and i crept up and got the gun-barrel through a hole in the side of the sty and just as the old buck-rat and then it was mr parrot again emma I'll tell you b b better than me jane it came hoot-tootin round the corner and afore i could s s stop george n n nonsense afore i could s s seize hold of the emma do bide quiet afore i could s say jack robinson the old mare she b b backed upon her haunches and she and from miss matilda oh i should so love to mr weaverley is there a very beautiful view and could we walk there and back in an afternoon do you think and from farmer coles folding up his napkin well if no one won't have no more the rest was lost in the rustle of mrs coles's skirts as she uprose and now william dear i think we ladies will leave you to your smoke and when you are quite ready we will have a rubber and a little music in the drawing-room presently the farmer and his wife and mr and mrs parrot sat down to a solemn silent game of whist 
a happy family party made a vortex of merriment in a far corner at the piano stood mr weaverley translating into soft melodious trifles such songs as the wolf and hearts of oak as for me i was happy in the great chair with the family portrait album full of early victorian photographs which i sincerely believe to be amongst the most fascinating and informing productions of all that fertile reign but after an hour of this inspiring occupation i was suddenly roused to the contemplation of a still greater wonder one of the card players had spoken and that sharply emma emma my dear i strolled over and watched the play something had happened to disturb mr parrot for though his face was turned from me i could see that his bald head had taken on a purple hue and gradually as the game progressed the mystery became clear emma my d dear emma it was mr parrot's voice again and this time with a sharper ring of warning and remonstrance two or three times in the next half hour he spoke thus and each time now i was able to detect the cause mrs parrot was cheating continually her neck craned for a sidelong view of her opponent's cards she revoked unblushingly once i could have sworn i saw a card corner sticking out of a fold in her silken lap the aces she seemed to be trying to mark with her thumbnail and all the time though mr parrot got momentarily redder and more wrathful farmer coles and his wife sat serenely smiling evidently well used to dear emma and her little harmless eccentric ways here is a winter's day already and still november as i looked forth at sunrise this morning the whole village was white with frost i could hear the ice in the wheel ruts crackling under the tread of passers-by a single thrush piped forlornly somewhere in the dense thicket of the churchyard and as i leaned out into the nipping blast a word came up to me bandied between a trudging labourer and his friend a word that brought with it an entire new sheaf of thoughts and memories more an half like christmas bent at bell it was said but in jest and that unthinkingly yet by the calendar as a glance now told me christmas was scarce a month away while the sun was yet no more than a white spot in the faint gold mists of morning i took the lane that led to the downs it was strange to see how the frost had missed all the bright-hued berries in the hedgerows and how the ivy leaves were only rimmed with white it was the same with the prickly holly foliage the spines were thickly encrusted 
while the dark green membranes of the leaves had given no finger hold to the frost but the colour of the grass and dead dry herbage by the wayside was completely blotted out every blade and twig stood up stark and white against its fellow and here it was easy to see which way the frozen air had been drifting all night long because on the windward side the pale accretion was thicker in the more exposed places it more than doubled the natural girth of the stems where the dew-pond lay at the top of the hill far above the swimming lowland mists there must have been bright sunshine from the very first for here the veneer of frost had melted into dewdrops that flashed back a thousand prismatic rays amidst the emerald of the grass at every step but behind each upstanding tussock the frost still held as white and thick as ever the water too in the pond was still frozen over as i came up to the rail a flock of starlings rose whirring over my head they had been waiting there on the sunny side of the bank for the ice to melt round the pond edges and thither they would return to slake their morning thirst as soon as i passed on keen and unkindly blew the blast so that one must keep ever moving to withstand the chill of it looking round me on the waste of hills i could see that the northern slopes still retained their wintry hue though all those facing to the sun were intensely green below in the valley only the oak woods kept their bronze stain of autumn every other tree the hedges that divided ploughlands and meadows the winding line of thicket marking the course of the river all looked bare and dark in the glistening pallor of the sun the river itself between the broad water meadows seemed like a river of ink as i took in all the cheerless void purity of what lay below me thinking to myself that this indeed was winter there came a sudden cawing and dawing high up in the frosty steel-blue dome of the sky and here again was confirmation of that unenlivening fact a great company of rooks and jackdaws was streaming by but with none of its summer zest and purpose the throng made a general progress towards the south yet it was obviously doing little more than killing time spinning out the business of a doubtful journey into the semblance of a morning's task instead of going straight forward in one steady strong tide the birds were incessantly veering back in wide circles crossing and recrossing each other's paths aimlessly and weaving a mazy dark pattern on the sky i watched this dubious host from the hilltop until it vanished in the eye of the sun and then fairly beaten at last by the razor-edged north wind 
turned and went back to the village it was winter again in truth and there was little sense or profit in blinking it i would strike my flag now as i had struck it often before and the flag with me was the little staging of fernery that still concealed the yawning blackness of my study hearth i pulled it all down and stowed it away and by and by when the ash logs were sizzling and glowing and the sparks were volleying up the flue and a living warmth pervading the room i plucked up new heart and courage no mirth no cheerfulness no healthful ease no comfortable feel in any member no warmth no shine it was all as false now as it must ever have been and as for butterflies and bees what but a sick fancy could crave for such delicacies out of season end of section twenty two